You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. New York is a city of 8 million people, approximately 7 million of whom will be furious when they hear you were in town and didn't meet them for an expensive dinner, 5 million furious you didn't visit their new baby, 3 million furious you didn't see their new show, 1 million furious you didn't call for sex, but only 5 actually available to meet you. It is completely reasonable to call none of them. You could instead sneak off to a terrible, treacly Broadway show that you will never admit you paid $200 to see. This is what Les does on his first night, eating a hot dog dinner to make up for the extravagance. You cannot call it a guilty pleasure when the lights go down and the curtain goes up, when the adolescent heart begins to beat along with the orchestra, not when you feel no guilt. And he feels none. He feels only the shiver of delight when there is nobody around to judge you. It is a bad musical, but like a bad lay, a bad musical can still do its job perfectly well. By the end, Arthur Les is in tears, sobbing in his seat, and he thinks he has been sobbing quietly until the lights come up and the woman seated beside him turns and says, Honey, I don't know what happened in your life, but I am so, so sorry, and gives him a lilac-scented embrace. Nothing happened to me, he wants to say to her. Nothing happened to me. I'm just a homosexual at a Broadway show. Andrew Sean Greer is the author of the novels The Story of a Marriage, The Confessions of Max Tavalli, the Path of Minor Planets, and The Impossible Lies of Greta Wells. He also has a collection of short stories called How It Was For Me. His new novel is Less. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is such a delightful book. It's a look at uh, what we might have called uh, 15 years ago a mid-list author. <laughs> Do we not say mid-list anymore? I, I thought I think the mid-list kind of vaporized. It's, I know. Everyone got jobs, yeah. Yeah, we all had to get second jobs. Uh, who is uh, finds himself with a need to travel? And I, you've structured this as a series of visits. So tell us first a little bit about creating the character of Arthur Less. He is such a fascinating fellow. I'm glad you like him. He was... He started off a very different character in a different novel I was writing, <laughs> probably four years ago when I started putting this together, um, that I can hardly remember it, and I certainly am not going to look back at those early drafts. Much more serious um, and heavy-browed character. And I, with like a beard and things, I was not as close to 50 as I am now, so I had a different idea of what 50 would be. Um, and I just couldn't feel very sorry for him. So I... I made what was a poignant novel into a comedy instead. And then, oddly, my affection went out towards him much more than when I was trying to feel his woes with him as a narrator. Mm -hmm. Instead, I got to do a gentle ribbing of him that made him, that meant I could show his flaws as comic and, and, and go and sort of love writing about him. He is so much fun to be with every single page of this book. And as you say, uh, late in the novel, he talks about uh, somebody who's a not a hero but a fool. <laughs> and, and I think that you do such a good job of creating this character who's so wonderful. You mentioned uh, a, 
a word that's extremely important to this novel, narrator. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, the the this book is has an a, an interesting approach because it feels like a third person omniscient almost almost almost. And yet it's actually first person, which you know from the first line, because mm-hmm. he says, from where I sit, the story of Arthur Less is not so bad. Mm-hmm. But that first person narrator really disappears into the the pages and only once in a while gets to pop up. And for me, a, a lot of writers write this way. Roth's Zuckerman novels are mostly feel like third person, like American Pastoral, when it's really a first person novel. And it's it's a way to get the best of both. And also it means that you know someone in particular is having a good time telling the story instead of a sort of mean narrator. <laughs> so it can't really feel cruel because they must know them. Right. Well, yeah, I guess uh, God, though omniscient, is maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, not so, uh, you know, amenable. <laughs> maybe not, not such a nice guy. We don't know, do we? We nev- We don't know. But you know a real person, um, that, that a real person's affection might come across in the novel, which was my, the pleasure of it. And the, the device in the Nabokov's novel, Penin, has something similar, that you know that someone is telling the story, but you forget except for when you're just going, wow, I, I love whoever's telling this story, too. Good. So, And that creates a kind of a, a, a plot tension uh, for us. to, to We want to figure out who that is. But first, as we get to know Arthur Less, he's such an interesting character. He, he's a man who has uh, been, he has some literary success, but not so much. He's been living with genius. He understands genius. And, you know, I always thought that, I guess, one of the the anterooms of hell that was not explored by Dante is the anteroom occupied by people who are able to recognize greatness, understand greatness, enjoy greatness, but are sadly incapable of ever actually executing it themselves. The kind of Salieri and Mozart. Yes, so talk about, I mean, uh, Arthur has has a little bit, he's not jealous, but he understands his own limits, doesn't he? I think that's what, I mean, he's not a mediocrity. It's worse. He's actually talented. <laughs> but he's not, he's lived with one of the great poets who I invented mm-hmm. of the, of, I guess, the late 20th century. Um, and, and, and that crowd of people, you know, I'm not, next to one of those worlds like the New York School of Poets or anything, but I imagine being next to them, it would be heady and wonderful that they would be generous with people not burdened with genius, <laughs> but that you would know where you stood. So talk about the the Russian River School. This is so great. It seems you do such a great job. I was ready to look these people up. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that I was. It was great fun because I don't actually have to write their poetry or their <laughs> operas or anything. I just get to. I made up an opera about Patty Hearst. I thought was a funny idea for an opera, and then I thought actually maybe it's not so bad. It shows my mediocrity. <laughs> no, I think that I'm. I think that uh, there's certainly room in this world for an opera about Patty Hearst. There is room for everything. There is room for everything. <laughs> uh, tell us about um, how Arthur's. Um, the 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 love of Arthur's life that 
is in the Russian school and this relationship between him and this man? Well, I found it, I've never had a relationship like this, but it's something interesting I thought about that gay men in particular, uh, gay women too, have where um, you could have a huge gap in your age, an -hmm. older man and a young, I think uh, Robert's 41 or something and Les is 21, which is a rather large age gap, um, which happens in straight couples too. But then time passes um, and then they break up and then Arthur in his 40s then becomes the older man to the younger lover he takes. I just thought it would it's so strange how that can flip um, and you change sides somehow and that he has to look at it from from both sides, from being young and everything you gain from being with a much older successful person and then also being the older person and maybe realizing you don't have as much to give as the genius did <laughs> or know, thinking you don't. I have to say that... Um, I was partway through this book, and I I realized the genius of Joni Mitchell, with both sides. Now you well, just the you genius sat... of Joni Mitchell, of course, yeah. <laughs> but but I think that that's part of the genius of this book is that you do give us this look of of a man who's seen both sides of the equation of love and loss, and he has come down. He's he's pretty much all right with himself. But that both sides now really informs this book, doesn't it? And she wrote that when she was 19, I think. How is that possible? How is that possible? And <laughs> How could she have looked at love from both sides then? <laughs> so, so tell us uh, about um, how in this book... Uh, this both sides now. Did you did you think about this kind of uh, flipping back and forth as you were creating the travel narratives? Well, it all. It's always hard. You're asking me how'd you do it. <laughs> that's that's what I always would ask any writer I talk to. Um, it 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 evolved gradually because the travel narrative was not the original plot of the novel. It's one I. I scrapped the old one when I realized what I really wanted to write about, which probably took about a year and a half before I got rid of the old novel and wrote the first chapter, which was the third chapter in Italy. And then I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> um, and then travel narrative, it's in present tense. Mm-hmm. So usually I don't like present tense because it's there's no depth to it and you don't know um, what's going to happen. Um, so there's no... It just seems like it's all happening right in front of you like a movie. And so to have some depth, I wanted to go deep into the past in some way. I think that's what I like as a writer Mm -hmm. and as a reader, I think, so that something's happening at the moment and you're, whoa, no, is he going to fall off the edge of the apartment building? And then you also hear about some long ago story. And then you get a sense of someone's whole life up to this moment and whether they're going to fall and what it would mean. I I think that uh, the... uh, I guess it's like almost frescoes uh, of this novel where you're going forward and then you take us back into a memory. I think that that is really um, incredibly intimately architected and it feels uh, so effortless. And that's, I think, the the real feel of this novel. It feels like you just kind of blew this off in a second. But as you read the beautiful sentences, and there are so many in this book, it's an absolute pleasure uh, just to read. So uh, I <laughs> I'm glad to hear it feels like I blew it off in a second. It takes it I worked hard to make it feel like you could just read it for fun. Uh-huh. Even though uh, to me it's not completely fun. 
No, you know, but I think it's it, it. You do you use the power of humor to evoke what's underneath without getting maudlin about it. This is a book that explores, I guess, many of the saddest and and most heart wrenching times of our lives, with a light heart, and with a man who has come at peace with himself. And I think that you do such a a beautiful job of evoking this. <laughs> so talk when you were uh, writing this. We we have what happens here. Um, well, I guess explain how Arthur comes upon this plan for travel. It's not necessarily the best plan in the it's world. It's not very well crafted. He um, he he gets an invitation in the ma- in the mail that his his longtime lover who broke up with him is getting married, and he's invited to the wedding in San Francisco uh, or near Point Reyes. Actually, he's is where he gets married. Um, and Arthur thinks I can't go, but also I can't say no because everyone will say oh Arthur couldn't bear to be here so he thinks I'll just write that I'm abroad and he looks at all of his invitations he has which you know writers and critics get all kinds of loony invites to things for free and if you're desperate enough you'll say yes and he says yes to every one of them and it takes him on a a sort of zigzag trip around the world. In each of these uh, places that you take him to uh, it's really fun did you it feels like you might have been right there writing this because there's so much immediacy to this. You talked about writing in the present tense. Uh, did you have to train yourself to write in the present tense? Did you have to train yourself to live in the present tense? Oh, my God. If I could only train myself to live in the present tense <laughs> every day, I'd be <laughs> meditating to do that. Um, I Well, I went to every one of these places, mm-hmm. some of them before I had the idea and some of them to fill out specifically to fill out the book. But I, too, had to get sort of invitations or writing gigs because I can't afford to fly to those places. Uh, And I took copious notes, which I don't normally do in life, but I carried a notebook around and took notes of everything I saw around me and the things that were unusual. Um, Because my rule for myself was I couldn't put anything in the book that I hadn't written down in the notebook. I couldn't invent a monkey. I could only put one if I'd seen a monkey, only that particular monkey, because I didn't want a book that was a sort of travel fantasy. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's forced with the reality that everyone in these countries is doing just fine. Uh-huh. He's the thing out of place. And the comedy comes from from him being the wrong thing and having the wrong expectations. Well, uh, there are, when you talk about some of the, the things that you put in here, there are some amazing details that just are stunning. I love, I, I didn't even know such a thing could exist. The hummingbird moth. Yeah. It, uh, that just knocked me on my socks. It's pretty beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So did you uh, did you see one of those? Yeah, I see them all the time. Because I spent half my year in Italy. I run a, a, a writer's residency there. And these tiny little creatures show up and uh, are beautiful. And the Italians love them, too. They're so charmed by their own country. <laughs> As they should be, <laughs> as they as we all should be. Um, so, uh, I, the one of the things I think you do really well is to create realistic relationships, uh, realistic love relationships between your characters, between the men, and I think you do a great job because you. I guess this, the people in this book feel very pragmatic. They 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 are not like. This isn't. These people are not thinking about 
great lives or uh, Robert is, but he's kind of like on his own trajectory. Yeah, he's a life of the mind. The life, yeah. a life of the mind. But I think most of the people in this book are very pragmatic. And so talk about Carlos and Freddie and uh, setting up that kind of uh, home base. I, that's what I felt that Carlos was kind of like home base. Carl, almost mercenary Carlos in <laughs> yeah. some way, yeah. um, which is his old, old friend, sort of nemesis back when in their early 20s, and they've known each other all this time. But uh, And Carlos has always gone for success and stability and and money, honestly. those That was like the men he dated, the choices that he made. And, um, and, and Arthur... Uh, never did that or didn't think he was doing that. He fell for Robert for various reasons, a poet, not wealthy, and uh, sort of has stumbled his way forward. And he meets Carlos again near the end of the book. They're both changed people. And you understand a little bit how Carlos, coming from real poverty, had to make his way up and that he envied envied Arthur all that time. Um, that, for me, was a fun scene to write of two sort of frenemies, I guess, in a way. The way you gain over time respect mm -hmm. for someone that you battled with long, long ago, and now the battle's all forgotten. It's, 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 it's like when the past becomes irrelevant almost. How could you carry any of that with you still? <laughs> well, that's this book carries itself so lightly, though it deals with a lot of very serious ideas and people, but you have managed to extract all the negative effects of gravity <laughs> and then created an almost anti-gravity <laughs> here. So uh, the, the book is really funny and really fun to read. And so let me put a stake through the heart of humor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to explain it. Well, you know what? I, at least in in this book, what was interesting was that anything that I... I sat and I thought, what is your, Andy, what is your greatest fear? Or what do you think is the worst thing that ever happened to you? Which I often do when writing a book. Or like, what's a terrible thing someone said to you? And normally I would make those, try to make those into moving sad scenes. And I thought, make that into a funny story instead. And not all of them happened to me. So <laughs> I stole from other people. Or they're just things that I've always been afraid of happening to me. Uh -huh. And I was like, if I go into the the most humiliating, belittling experience I've had or can imagine. It's a funny story if you know things turn out okay. Right, right. Well, and that's what's interesting about this book is because uh, we know by virtue, as you say, of the narrator from the very beginning that things are, are going... Arthur's going to be pretty okay. Well, you have a first-person narrator right. who knows how things turn out. That's always nice because you know that first-person narrator is wouldn't tell you this if they didn't know a interesting ending to it. It's a story <laughs> worth telling, you know. So you feel a little safe. I think you wouldn't make fun of someone who falls off a cliff at the end, although I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. <laughs> now, uh, that makes me think, too, uh, of the way that you use story in this book because there's the overarching story and then there are, are these frescoes within each place. And I love the way that the frescoes kind of interlock. And you do a great job because the 
what we think or what Arthur thinks is going to be the important part of each of his places he visits is actually often tends to be less important than the mishaps on the way to that important part. Isn't that life? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, Isn't that what you find? Isn't that travel? I mean, travel is nothing but mistakes. That's why you go, is to make a ton of mistakes and and get by nonetheless. If you have a mistake-free trip, you haven't actually traveled. So um, you spend a lot of time in, in Tuscany and Italy. How did you get from San Francisco to Tuscany? I, uh, also desperation. Um, well, I was first invited probably 12 years ago to this writer's residency in Tuscany um, because the woman who ran it, a Beatrice Monti della Corte, read my book, Confessions of Max Tivoli, and invited me. And it's about four writers who get invited. And I loved it because I, she invites a lot of American and British writers to open their eyes to a different world of European literature and art that we're really blind to as much as we think we pay attention. And that was incredible to me. And then eventually she turned to me one day as I was visiting her in Italy and she said, she's 91 now. She said, I would like you to uh, see if you could take over this, you know, along with me and then maybe after I'm gone. Wow, how interesting. And its own comedy, of course, in a way, <laughs> running a writer's residency, I have to say. So tell, tell us about um, our, Arthur's first stop on his trip, which is in New York, where he's introducing a, a science fiction writer. This is so beautifully done. <laughs> <laughs> it already feels painful even to talk about that, the poor guy. Well, he got... And we've both gotten invitations like these where you're asked to go to great trouble to interview someone um, where you have to read maybe they've written dozens of enormous books. They're hugely popular. You have to travel. You're going to deal with, you know, fans who know more, much more than you do and maybe a difficult ego on stage. <laughs> but for some reason, you agree to do it. Who knows what you're thinking you're getting out of that? Um and he does think, how low on the list did they get before someone said, how about Arthur Less? <laughs> Who would be desperate enough to do it without getting paid? <laughs> now, uh, I, I love the the language and the sentences in this book. Are There are so many that are so beautifully written, and, and it's really just a pleasure to read each one. What I felt as I read this book was that I was like walking I kept thinking about the forest and the trees and and that um as we read this book each sentence is like a tree they're just beautifully they spread out like a tree you can see the sentence diagram kind of growing naturally flowing it's really beautiful to read and then as you're reading each sentence it's almost you don't even realize that you're just getting this other really beautiful story the prose in this book is so good this must have been just a gnarly, distressing effort to create this. I don't want to spoil the illusion. <laughs> it I, it does take a lot of effort to make. I think also what's – I always tell my students that the, 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 the answer to whatever problem they have in their work is, is in language, mm -hmm. that the answer is always in language about how the story is told. And um, for me, it also it was a way – to be funny, because um, humor is about timing, so you control the timing mostly 
in, in a novel. You don't know when someone picks up or puts down their book in the middle of a funny paragraph, but you can get, get a sentence really rolling and land it in a way that's very satisfying for me. You know, I think something you said earlier on was that was really important to this book, and one of the reasons I loved it so much was that you decided to uh, just take your character and kind of like embarrass them in <laughs> submission. And I think the power of embarrassment um, is is highly underrated in modern li- literature and in modern life. We are really uh, terrified of it, and, and yet it's something that when experienced, you can gain great strength from and also insight into who you are. Yeah, I mean, part of humiliation is humility, which... (laughs) I have never thought about that, but yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe being humiliated is different from being humbled. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's worse. But it's... There is... And there is that funny feeling of, for instance, if you're about to go on stage for something that you know is just going to be devastatingly humiliating um you could back out but you don't you you take in a breath and you go out everyone who's had to do high school theater has done it or some audition actors have to do it all the time and you just do it anyway and you do it anyway over and over throughout your life and you get used to it or you know that you can survive it but Mm. i for me every time it's still just awful (laughs) You know, you have to have dinner with some person that's just going to undermine you the way they have for decades, and you do it again. You get through it. It's, but it is an insight into yourself and what your fear is, which of course is a ridiculous fear, almost always. You know that's true. The things that terrify us the most that, and that's what this book. You know, I think the gift of this book gives to the reader. It says that. You can live through terror. Not only can you live through terror, you can laugh through it at yourself if you can only see yourself. And this book essentially holds up a a mirror to its main character. And what's interesting is that we understand that not only is there a mirror being held up, that somebody's holding up that mirror. Well, and I think... It was good for me to write because I started to search through my day for something funny that happened. Because, you know, you always meet these people who are like, why does everything funny happen to them? <laughs> and it it's not that something funny happens to them. They are paying attention and they turn things into funny stories in order to get through that day. And they get through by telling you. And if you laugh, then they sort of put it behind them. And I learned to take that on writing the story every time I would trip on the sidewalk or get a cab splash rain on me, you know, you could get furious and think the world is working against you, or you could just think, oh, oh, here we go again. (laughs) Great. When's the third one? What's the third humiliation of the day? And then it's over. Give us this day our daily humiliation. (laughs) I mean, me biking over here on one of those blue San Francisco bikes was pretty funny. I couldn't figure out how to change out of the circus bicycle gear. (laughs) So that was number one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, here we are. I'm, I'm hoping to avoid uh, being number could two. It could happen any minute. <laughs> it could happen. This water any... could hit that phone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you, you take uh, Arthur Less to, to, to Mexico. And uh, Mexico is an interesting place because it's uh, it's both more and less, I think, a um, 
in America, we feel it's both more and less civilized than America. It feels like uh, when almost like going into the Wild West a little bit. Well, and what I wanted to do, and I try to do this for 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 most of the places he visits, was to do the opposite of what the normal comic mode is mm-hmm. for that country. So the joke in Mexico City when he goes there is that it's I think he's maybe thinking it's going to be sombreros and Mexican blankets or something. He doesn't know. He gets there and of course it's elegant, sophisticated, culturally elevated and like Madrid, which it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a highly sophisticated city. It's cosmopolitan. It's cosmopolitan much mm-hmm. more than than American cities are. I mean, maybe San Francisco is that way, but but it not really at the level of Mexico City. And so he's and he's invited to this academic conference, right? And he's he's he doesn't speak Spanish. Everyone there speaks multiple languages. He's take he's treated so kindly by all of them and treated seriously intellectually, except and so it's embarrassing that he would come with this expectation and then realize that he's the least capable or cosmopolitan person he meets in the whole time in Mexico. Sort of a, a flip of the American um, cliche about Mexico because we all, most of us haven't been to the sophisticated parts of it. And um, of course, the one person who treats him badly as an intellectually um, ridiculous is the other American who is <laughs> running the conference without even speaking Spanish. Uh, there's uh, one of my favorite parts of this book, passages of this book, is where somebody's explaining to him and they keep it. This this is a, a fabulous riff. You, you do well with riffs. and, and there's oh, a, good. <laughs> I, I just love the riffs in this book. I mean, you know, are, are you a musician? No. I was going to say that there's a there's quite a bit of almost uh, rock and roll happening here. That is a great compliment. I'm going to put that on the paperback. <laughs> there's a, because um you do so well with the riffs and what I'm talking about is that the man who explains the many many wonderful cultural attractions that Arthur could attend to except for <laughs> her. and they're all closed. <laughs> all closed. Uh, um now, when, the, when you write a, a novel like this where it's kind of a, a travelogue, the, I think you do a great job of avoiding one of the pitfalls, which is I, I read this whole thing. It feels all like one long, one nice journey. There's no um, episodicness to this. Or it, it doesn't, not to the fact that you notice it, but I, it's contained in that way. So talk about creating a whole novel that's out of really distinct parts. I mean, I would think in many ways you probably could have published some of these bits as short stories. Well, I published one <laughs> in The New Yorker, um, which was Italy, but I had to remove... Um, well, here's what's interesting. I wrote each of these first, and I sent three of them to my my agent, and she said, this is an interesting short story collection you're putting together. And I said, no, 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 it's a novel. Trust me, you'll see later. <laughs> so apparently I added other layers throughout the real story to thread it together and make it. And I kept going through and trying to pull jokes from one chapter to another and to echo it throughout. So much so that when I, the New Yorker wanted to publish a piece, I realized I had to go back to my first draft (laughs) because it had too much of the rest of the novel in it for it to make any sense. 
So I went back to the very first thing I wrote and I sent them that. And that's what they published. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So it really was very episodic at first, which I didn't want. Mm -hmm. I wanted, because I like a novel. Mm -hmm. I I do do too. Yeah, no, I like a... And that means something that that there are echoes in the first chapter and last chapter, that there's imagery that connects together, that there are... um, characters you are waiting to see again and there's there's connections throughout so i think i must have done that i don't recall <laughs> well no, I... so much fiddling <laughs> <laughs> when you were uh i i for me there's a great there's a great uh, observation about an editor in here i think this is is that is this your editor that you describe it was the previous editor uh, and she i can tell she hasn't read it yet but she's a, a good friend um because she would scream and call me immediately if she saw it <laughs> <laughs> because I used to make fun of her publicly for exactly these things well not not exactly these I, you know I've I've um, exaggerated portions of her but she did um, once tell me that she was that um, there was a section that was um, a sentence so beautiful she was keeping it all to herself <laughs> that, I, I so love that line <laughs> Isn't that a brilliant way to delete something? <laughs> yeah, it's such a great way. Oh. I, I have to say, too, you know, maybe that's the, the, that's exactly what fuels this novel. That feeling of here is the absolute worst thing that could happen to you <laughs> if you were this person. But it's act, we're doing it for your own good and you'll be happier afterwards. And it's true, you are happier. So, yeah. And it's not so bad, as the uh-huh. first sentence of the book tells you. It's not so bad. It's not so bad, <laughs> If no. this is the worst that could happen, this guy, and other people tell him, you have the best life of anyone I know, which he is unable to fathom. I, I love that about, about him, because we feel that about him. It's a, he, he just lives a, a wonderful life. But we also understand that his kind his, uh, I guess, the the blinkers that he has on or, or the, the little uh, things around his eyes to keep him, you know, the little tunnel he wears in front of his face that we all wear, we can kind of see that throughout this book, yet we're outside it by virtue of your fabulous narrator. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I think, a really interesting balance. How did you keep from getting sucked into the tunnel? The Arthur Tunnel. The Arthur Tunnel. I think that's a good question. I don't have a great answer for that because it is one of my flaws um, that to get sucked into something maudlin or self-pitying. And somehow in this book, because it's comic, because I chose a narrator um, like the one I did, I was able to turn my flaws into... Um, into strength. Strength somehow. Yeah, because. No. Oddly, because it's comic, I, I feel like I actually got closer to emotion and got away with it than mm-hmm. I have in other books. And also, my other flaw is long-winded purple prose. And here, I just pushed it further, and then it's funny. <laughs> you know? So I I can't tell you how much fun. It was a lot of work, but I had a lot of fun doing it because the things that I often have to... Um, whip myself for doing because they're indulgences I got to indulge in. You know, I I was thinking about something that uh, the the key to making it, we often hear that the key to making a good villain 
is to make that villain think, um, to, to understand that even <clears throat> the most crazy pants person in the world, quite a few of those around, <laughs> yeah. uh, thinks that they're doing, they're, they're the hero. They're helping everybody. If only things were my way, it would just be fabulous. And and I think that there's a, a bit of that kind of understanding of Arthur. In a sense, he's the villain and the hero of this piece simultaneously, and he doesn't know that he's either. He's really yeah. just trying to get along. Well, he's he's hurting people. He's being hurt by people. He's definitely sort of blindfolded walking through. Um, and it some people seem infuriated by that. Some are touched by it, but almost everyone wants to slap him across the face. <laughs> Sweetly. <laughs> Sweet, sweetly. Um, one of the themes in this novel you were talking about, uh, Arthur, he travels to all these places. Many of them, he doesn't know the language. And I think translation is, is actually, in a sense, a theme because this book might... I've, Another alternate title is the translation of Arthur Less. <laughs> he, yeah, one of my favorite things to write was a chapter in Germany, because I thought I what I didn't want to do was to have funny accents for people because mm-hmm. I'm always impressed when I travel overseas how many languages other people speak even without formal educations they've just had to learn them and we Americans speak almost no. Languages. I guess we don't get the chance very often, but still, it's it's shocking um, how ignorant and ill-educated we are in that. <laughs> so I thought the person I want with the funny accent is going to be Arthur. So when he goes to Germany, he's confident he's fluent in German. He studied it all through school. So you hear him. Everyone, everything's translated from German. So everyone's speaking normally, the Germans. And then this guy with a funny accent is Arthur, the entire chapter, which just was so fun to make fun of the American, <laughs> arrogantly thinking. The thing is, he never knows that he's bad at German. People keep telling him. But he's like, no, uh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> this this is, uh, I, that chapter, in a sense, is like what happens when you start trying to uh, throw song lyrics into Google Translate a few times. Yeah, well, it was something like that for me to come <laughs> up with those sentences that because I don't know German, but I wanted ones that were possible mistakes in German. Well, you did a great job. And the the aspect of travel I like about this is that the kind of, uh, it's very, Arthur's travels are very extemporaneous. On one hand, you want to try to plan things, and he does try to plan things, but very few of those plans work out. Yeah. And I think that, that that the way you pull that off makes it feel very nice. It, this book feels extremely realistic. I mean, that people react like the way real people do. Things happen pretty much the way people have, they actually happen. This is at... I haven't even thought about this. This is probably the most realistic book I've read in a long time. Oh, you must have traveled a lot <laughs> no. and seen that kind of. That's a great compliment. I don't know um, anything except that I. A lot of these chapters I wrote right after I'd left that country, mm-hmm. like right the month after so that I had everything in my mind and was thinking about how people would react. None of the people in this are, are real people, mm-hmm. but all the objects in it are, are real. 
for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. That's not very helpful. <laughs> um, so it's autobiographical in a physical sense, but um, none of these people said or did any of these things. But they seemed likely to me, and and funny. Right. Well, I you know, uh, I I also really love when when he ends up in France. In France, I think you do a, a great job of creating the kind of uh, uh, chaotic, you know, our chaotic lives, and, and the way that when you think you're somewhere where you know nobody you will find somebody you know. And I think that that's an interesting observation. Well, especially in these strange... Arthur is is completely outside of social media. He doesn't even seem to have a cell phone, which <laughs> I did on purpose because I didn't want to... I, I thought that would spoil the fun, you know, which it often does. Yeah. It, that's a, That was a, fascinating. I read this whole book. I never even noticed the absence of a cell phone. No cell phone. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's great. And I guess, in a sense, here's a book that's a vacation from our obsession with cell phones, social media, and the rest of that stuff. Yet it doesn't just discard them. It just... Well, I tried to... I have a friend who does the same thing in his books, but I... Uh, he doesn't... You don't talk about email. You hear he gets a message. Mm-hmm. You know, he. It, it's vague about he saw something on a screen... I just didn't want it to be part of that. Even though it's present tense, I want it to be sort of... Also, you and I are old enough to recall a time before cell phones, so we can imagine (laughs) traveling without one. Even now, people do because it's too expensive. They turn off the phone. Yeah, I should have. (laughs) Yeah. I've learned you buy a SIM card in the country where you're going, and then you have a new number. But but all of that is... um, is beyond him. And so in a way, you said it's such a realistic novel, but in a way it's a fantasy because all that whole aspect of the world I took away. Oh, that it strips it down to it's about humans. Yeah. And and, I, and when you travel outside of of the US or or very western Europe, that is all it is. It, re, people really aren't participating on screen even in Italy. It is not about cell phones or computers there. Well, and in Morocco. In Morocco, no. <laughs> that is so much fun. I I love that uh, the 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 winnowing in that that under that that happens in that. <laughs> well, that one I that one I did do a, a cliche of travel in Morocco because it's all I was able to see. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to um to make fun of the the travelers not the moroccans who mm-hmm. are and so um i did it like an agatha christie novel <laughs> it was very very fun to do i had to cut down the number of people who 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 went down day by day my editor said can't start with 12 <laughs> well i think the other thing about this novel that's uh, really wonderful and this is a book that you read and enjoy and it changes you and you think about uh, one thing I love about books in general is that from page to page, from scene to scene, an author will quite deliberately make you think about different things, and that you thoughts that you're going thoughts that would come through your never come through your own brain are being there by virtue of the prose, and I I think that there are so many wonderful things that happen in this novel, but by the time we get to the end. You, uh, you realize, wow, 
he did a lot of stuff in that novel that I didn't even think of. Like, there's a huge, this has a big cast of characters. And I never really felt <clears throat> that was handled very, it's very lighthearted in that. We, we don't think, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people in this book. You just think, wow, this is really wild. This is fun. I, I, that is the best possible praise. <laughs> that is, that is what I wanted it to be. And that's what it was for me to write it. You know, there's, uh, but also because, be, because it's slightly episodic, mm-hmm. I'm able to let characters go. Right, right. That are only there for 30 pages and you don't hear from them again. And it's fine because travel's like that. Mm-hmm. You leave people behind and um, you think fondly on them, but onward you go, as do they. Well, I think, too, you were talking about being slightly episodic, 30 pages. You mentioned that number. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the way the novel unfolds in these series of scenes takes advantage of a certain kind of writing that's longer than a short story, shorter than a novel, but you use the shorter than a novel aspect so to like weave these things together. But that capturing that perfect attention span of how long we want to be here and here and here and here, that's really difficult. Did you have to find yourself like, did this want to be twice as long? It was longer, in fact. And I, the great, every novel I write, I have a terrible moment of, of crisis about something, um, a choice I have to make. And it takes me months to understand and come to the conclusion that I knew secretly from the beginning, which, and this one it was to, to cut a chapter, which was Vietnam, a whole chapter that was my editor liked, and we got almost to the end. And uh, the pacing was all wrong, and I just, took parts of it and put it um, in Japan instead and cut Japan. Because it's all, to me, the hard part is is pacing. That's the thing that you should never notice that I worked on. Mm-hmm. You should just naturally um, be told that way because that's storytelling. Yeah, it's pretty hard. Well, it, it's, I think that uh, the, 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 the plotting and the pacing of this book, I mean, it's, it's an absolute page turner in that respect, except for the fact that you want to kind of linger in those words oh, and in those sentences. Good. So uh, did you find yourself like you had to kind of, there, there, perhaps there were scenes that were too good and you had to kind of like ratchet them back so that they'd fit in with the rest of the piece? Oh, dear. Well, I do some indulgent scenes. My editor kindly told me that they would be done if we just moved faster. And in fact... Um, a great piece of advice. I dedicated this book to Daniel Handler, who's mm-hmm. a great writer and a, and a children's book author under Lemony Snicket. He read, I think, three drafts of this book. He's read many of my books and given me advice. This one, which he really loved and pushed and, and, and encouraged me about, his last advice was about the end. He was like, if, if it's a comedy ending, you just cut to it. I had written my usual long, elaborate, operatic ending which I love to write because you finish the book so now you can just go for it and he said not with a comedy you just have to go there which I which I did it was great advice well I think you do that with with each part because it seems like we're we're, one of the things I really loved about this book is I'm as I'm reading each part I'm thinking wow this is the the lead-up is so great 
and then wham, we're somewhere else. You can cut away. That's the thing about a travel <laughs> yeah. novel is that you can just leave and you're immediately somewhere else and the reader's like, how did we get here? That was, The other nice thing I realized once I picked the idea of a trip around the world is that, oh, the reader knows where we're going. Right. Home at the end. The world is round as far as I have heard. So so you, the reader already knows the pattern of the book. Mm-hmm. And the book, I've said, all you need is a is a structure and a style. He said plot does, is, doesn't mean anything. If you have structure and style, the reader knows they're in good hands and knows where it's going. And then you just enjoy yourself or work. Both. <laughs> I think that the uh, the the style of the book is is um, interesting in that you it's you have these wonderful evocative descriptions of place and people, but also too, I guess in a sense mitigating against that, but in a good way, in a team of rivals way, I guess, is that you have a a character who is kind of, I guess, clueless, <laughs> in a sense. I, you know that I never thought Andrew. He's a, he's a he's a little bit of a clueless in through all this. He doesn't exactly understand. How, I guess how he's affecting the reader. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I I guess I decided at one point I wanted to think of him as an an innocent mm-hmm. in a way right. that he's not not like political leaders we have who are clueless and arrogant. Right. No. 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 But 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 an but an innocent a candide you know <laughs> where you're just like candide you can't you know, get away from Cunegon, just settle down. But instead, you know, he goes on these things, but you just, you still love him because he's full of hope. Mm-hmm. That's really, he's 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 not cluelessly bashing around the world. He keeps thinking everything's going to go fine, <laughs> and it doesn't. And yet he continues to keep thinking, well, that's behind me. At least I can go on to the, <laughs> the next place. And we as readers are hoping it, it's not going to be fine because that's the fun of it. Um and I, I hope that's endearing about him. Well, I think, too, that I, this book doesn't have really a mean bone in its body. This book likes everybody. And, in fact, I, what we come to realize is that I, it's one of the things that's very important, I think, is for an author to like all of his characters. It makes a big difference. Even if they're bad guys, if your author likes all your characters, then you will like them regardless of where you are in the book. And we realized quite early on that the narrator of this book really, really likes Arthur and loves Arthur. And so so do we. And I think that that uh, is, a, is a powerful and important choice. I'm glad. And I'm, that's why I'm, I'm glad I, I picked the narrator I did because it's meant to be a a show of affection towards the character. That's the sort of the real structure of the novel. There is Often I read from a, a scene in France where he's confronted by a fellow writer who says terrible things to him, and at the end Arthur thinks to himself, well, at least I'm not short, making fun <laughs> of this guy. And I always feel bad about that. I'm like, that is the meanest thing Arthur has ever said, <laughs> making fun of this man for being short. Uh-huh. And it makes me... Not like him for, but he's really upset. So, and that's as bad as it gets. It's <laughs> calling someone short because he's not short. <laughs> I I think too that 
it's important for us as readers to understand that as Arthur um, goes through his trip and goes from one place to another, that he is, we see, he's not quite aware of just, of all his best qualities either. In fact, that's, I guess, what's interesting about him. Arthur is charming, he's sweet, he's nice, he's kind, but he's not, he doesn't really think about himself in those terms. He thinks, oh. He also, I think he also, he can't see himself as an adult completely. Mm. Oh, and well, that's yeah, absolutely with the the, mm-hmm. the Peter Pan passage is is absolutely great. Although it's also somewhat embarrassing if you're if you're a, of an elderly persuasion <laughs> and have been told stop acting like a teenager. Yeah, we. I that is part of his struggle in the book is that his fiftieth birthday is approaching, mm-hmm. and I think having been with someone for so long who was so much older um he was always treated as the as the precocious as the child mm-hmm. as the young young man even into his 30s and 40s treated as the young man and then suddenly he's asked to leap forward in time and be a grown up but he was he just doesn't have the training yet he's still seeing himself as a kid but he's 50 <laughs> so he's 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 figuring that out that's part of it is that a lot of people want to slap him and say, grow up. You know, you don't get the privileges of being a kid anymore. You're a man now. Figure it out. Um, but it's also maybe part of his charm is that he doesn't see it yet. The way he thinks he's fluent in German, he also thinks he's fluent in youth, and it's it's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that he kind of gets to have it both ways. I mean, he gets to be... Uh, he, he gets to be grow up and realize that he can be kind of a goofy kid. We all can be goofy kids. And that's the generous gift of this book. Good. <laughs> we could all wear a, 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 a garish blue suit if we want to, <laughs> which he does. <laughs> uh, are you working on something new, another novel? Uh, not, not yet. It's hard for me the year after a book. And I'll, I've been doing this other job, running this residency, mm-hmm. which is good because in the year after a book, it's hard for me to start something new. So I've been embroiled in Italy and um, plumbing and wiring systems and learning Italian. But I have something stirring that I hope I'm going to get back to. The new book by Andrew Sean Greer is Less. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.